Hey, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning into this episode. Uh, we are a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we really appreciate you listening, watching on YouTube. We really encourage you to subscribe to whatever platform you're using. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, or if you're on Apple or however you listen to a podcast, be sure and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. Also, make comments if you like it and share it if you like it. We really need people to make comments and share the episodes that you like. And then also, if you're not already a supporter, we really would encourage you to go to spiritualityadventures.com and you can pick a tier and we have bonus content for every type of giver. These are this is a nonprofit, so they're tax deductible donations, but we do provide bonus content for those who uh, are supporters. So be a part of the team, help support Spirituality Adventures, and we're so glad you're tuning into this episode. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode. This is a live event that we had on January 12th of 2024. It was an MLK event. And we had Dr. Nicole Price, who was our keynote speaker. We had a panel with uh, four of us, including myself, and then Pastor Michael Brooks, Anthony Mondain, and Greg Ely. And we talked about a lot of issues, kind of celebrating the past and looking forward to the future and all the work that still needs to be done as it relates to civil rights. So I hope you enjoy this. Listen, take care, and have a great new year. Missouri, barely, almost to Smithville, right? And uh, 
I was sitting there reading this and I thought, well, this is, this is my city. We got that going on. We need to go right down there and start partnering and doing some work and stuff like that. And so that's actually um, kind of like uh, the Green Impact Zone was starting right then. I got to know those folks. They said, hey, you need to meet Michael Brooks. And I was at the National Prayer Breakfast and somebody said, Michael Brooks is here. And it ended up being John Brooks, who's another pastor here in the town. So I ended up meeting John Brooks first, then I met Michael Brooks, and then we started partnering. And uh, we've done a lot of events together. I took an unplanned sabbatical for a few years, and then we were just hanging out, and I said, we need to get an NLK thing going again. And we were kind of late to the game, but it, but it all pulled together really beautifully, except for the weather. You know, that was, that was my only thing. But the vision really is to celebrate the victories of the civil rights movement, but also to realize that we've got a whole lot more work to be done. And my heart, I was pastoring at the time, probably the largest uh, church in the Northland. So predominantly white congregation. And I thought, we got to get people from the Northland down into the core to begin to realize there's still a lot of work to be done. So that was kind of one of my original passions, and it's still there. And uh, I've just been excited about the partnership of people that are pulling together. And there's a lot of work to be done, and we need to continue to press forward. So that's kind of that's good. Thank you. Getting those friends over the hand. I appreciate the distinction. I graduated from Central High School in 1980. Somebody had told me one of my best friends is going to be a white dude from North Kansas City. I would have had a few words for him, but um, got a whole lot of friends that I wouldn't have been friends with from Central High School. But uh, look at God. And then you all are here. There's a number of different congregations that other pastors alluded to. You pastor, would you stand a leader in the city? Would you all stand ministers and pastors? Would you all stand, please? Thank you all so much for being here. So we have, uh, we have a, a full program. Uh, we have a keynote speaker. I'm going to introduce her in a few minutes. Uh, can you give a hand to the music with our Arsenia and... We had some special guests here with us tonight, so we're going to hear from them uh, in a panel discussion, and uh, Dr. Price is going to lead that for us, and then we'll have an offering period. I apologize for not having a program. If you know what happened, we have a program. People expect you to stick to it. And so I don't get our programs, it means I ain't got to stick to it, because y'all know what we're going to do, so I can just do whatever I want to. Uh, so, but I'm, I'm grateful for y'all being here. Martin. Music and the movement is what we titled this. And let me pause also uh, to recognize Bob Hugh, who's also one of the brainchilds for this, whose wife has surgery. I ask you all to keep him in your prayers. That's why he can't be here. He is playing nurse practitioner uh, for his wife. And so please keep him in your prayers. But I'm sure he's watching. And so thank you, Bob, for all that you did uh, to put this together. Uh, I'm grateful and honored to introduce our keynote speaker or preacher or lecturer or whatever you want to call it. Preachers always have this running joke. What's the difference between uh, a sermon and a lecture? Nothing. <laughs> so what's the difference between a keynote and a, and a sermon? Nothing. Uh, she's going to come and do uh, what she does. She is also another good friend of ours who is a champion uh, what she calls the empathy revolution. And uh, I'm excited about uh, what she's going to present. Um, you can go to her. She's also the CEO of Life the Paradox. Uh, and she has done 
also work in a number of different uh, organizations and groups here, uh, a matter of fact, nationwide. And now we just found out she's got a TED Talk she's going to be doing at Morehouse College. And all the So I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to try to make it to the point. I can go see the TED Talk. But uh, I don't know that good at intros either. And she asked who's going to introduce her. I said, I am, but I'm going to introduce you as my friend who's doing some awesome work here in the city. Who's doing some awesome work in the city. And uh, she's going to introduce herself because she is of age and she is capable of doing that. Uh, the work, she's, she's an author, and I've read uh, two of her books. Uh, the first one blew me away, and after I got through reading, I had to give her a call and say, uh, you wrote my whole story. And then, uh, Spark of Heart is one of all you have to get. It's to become part of this uh, end of the revolution. You really need to read uh, Spark of Heart. She is a, a, a renowned author, uh, a prolific speaker. She is a child of God and somebody who loves those God's people. And I'm so grateful that she's here with us all tonight. So would you give me, help me give a round of applause to Dr. Nicole Price. Possibly take 
This door ATM machine <laughs> kicked out of insufficient funds. Now, I don't like to be late, but I want to be early in, which is a little bit of a problem. Because I had to be at the plant by 7.30. But I put that much pad time in. So I don't, I can't figure this out. And if you're much younger than me, you could, there was no app on your phone. In, in fact, when I got to the plant, they had internet, but you couldn't use the internet for whatever you wanted. You were supposed to only use it for work. And some of us had a passcode to be able to use the internet. Isn't that amazing I got carded today? Because now y'all know. <laughs> so I gotta get this kid daycare. I call my mom, like, mom, I don't have the money for daycare. I need you to pay Miss Margaret. She says yes. I drop my kid off. I get to the plane. I'm there on time. The following week, I get a book in the mail. I still have it. Because I was really excited about this book. It is, I may not get there with you. It was written by Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. Mm -hmm. And I was, I love to read, so I was extremely excited about this book. Because I thought, let me just escape this situation I have. But in the first chapter, I get pretty mad. Not just mad, almost disgusting. Because Dyson, in this book, he has this idea that he's going to encourage the rest of us that we can be like King because King has all these flaws. And in the first chapter, he's laying out the flaws for us. Now, just to set the stage, I'm one of those people who actually had two black male teachers in elementary school, not one not zero, two. And Mr. Charles Cooper, my sixth grade male black teacher, had me memorize the speech of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King that most people call the I Have a Dream speech when I was in sixth grade. So King for me is like this. And this book costs $25. It was more than 10 bucks more than I had. I want my money back. Because I couldn't see how anybody would take this approach to addressing how the rest of us could get involved in the movement. But I was just like many of us that we think that the ramp to get onto how we can solve some of our nation's persistent problems is real narrow. That there is a way. But it was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, none of us know the way. And so when people use distraction, divisiveness, destruction as the, the methodology to try to continue to tear down people, systems, structures. When we make progress, I always wonder, what is it that King would have said? And what I've come to realize can be 
summed up in a concept called the curb cut. So if you want to step down off of the sidewalk, there's a ramp to help you get down to the street. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It's called a curb cut. I use curb cuts. When my son was two years old and I had a stroke, I would push him on the curb cut. I wouldn't like pop a wheelie off the curb, right? I'm using the curb cut. When I travel and I have luggage, I use the curb cut. You probably sometimes use the curb cut just because, right? I ain't gonna step up for whatever reason that day. But why was the curb cut designed? For people who use wheelchairs. You see, if we had designed it for a stroller, it wouldn't satisfy the needs of everybody. If we had designed it for your luggage, it wouldn't satisfy the needs of everybody. If we designed it for skateboarders or for any other reasons besides people who use wheelchairs, it wouldn't satisfy everybody. It's called liberatory design, to design for the people who need it the most, not because they're deficient, but because it is the just thing to do. And so when we think about Americans and who is the equivalent of who needs the curb cut, it is always black people. If you are designing for anybody else, you might as well have made your curb cut for me with my shoulder. And when I think about the fact that all of us are still here and in this room, it takes me back to Frederick Douglass saying, it is a marvel that the Negro is still here. But when I hear people talk about the state of black Americans, here's what I hear. These young people today. Oh my God, the demasculation of the man. The alpha female. Where are the fathers? Oh my God, the music. It was Dr. Ibram X. Kendi who said, there's nothing wrong with black people except when we think there's something wrong with black people. To look at a person who has been able to overcome every single institution in the United States of America without exception as disproportionality based on race. Every single one. Education, healthcare, criminal justice systems, economic systems. You, there's not a single institution in the United States of America that ha doesn't have disproportionality based on race. Uh -huh. And so what do we do? Instead of saying, let us figure out how to solve for the system and the structural issues, uh -huh. which is what King was doing, he wasn't creating programs. How does a job program fix economic disparity. Uh -huh. It was King who said that is putting the cart before the horse. People with power understand that we have to dismantle systems that do not work and build new systems that do. Right. And instead of looking outside 
the black people for the answers. You think people in wheelchairs don't know how to get up on the curb? You think they didn't know how wide the ramp needed to be? And I like to use that example because nobody says, well, you know, there's an exception to the rule. I know this one person who uses a wheelchair and they get out of their wheelchair, pull their bodies up on the curb, and they make it work. So I don't know why the rest of us can't figure out how to do it. Come on now. And so the primary reason why I told you the 1374 story is at that time in my life, I, I didn't really understand capitalism. I didn't understand materialism. I didn't understand white flight. I didn't understand systems and structures and institutional racism. It was Gerald Fitz, actually, who taught me those things. The ball had a brain right there. And I feel like it is important for each of us, as we learn, to talk about the fact that we have not always known. Because when we do, that allows us to have the empathy necessary to bring other people along on the journey. Mm -hmm. When we behave and act as if we have always known, then my job is to, I don't know why you don't know. If I may, can I? Please, just somebody give me a yes, go ahead. <laughs> the person who organized the March on Washington was one of the gayest people I have ever seen on video. Yeah. When we decide that the intersection of blackness must be separate from sexual orientation and religion and gender and all of these other things, it is a distraction. It is a distraction that prevents us from moving forward. So what do we do? And why did I mention the 1374 story? My friends, after I came out of that situation, and I know Michael Brooks is probably holding his breath, hoping that I don't say the title of the book. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. My friends started calling the strategies that I personally used to get out of that 1374 fiasco, Operation 1374. And all it is, is the opposite of distracted by destroy. It is, how do you focus on what you are here to do to progress the movement forward? If somebody else decides that they want to play certain music in their congregation, my role is to figure out how I can do what I need to do in order to make the ramp wider for more black Americans. It is a distraction for me to be divisive about anything else. Focus. Focus on your stuff, your lane, what you are doing. Focus. <clears throat> How do we overcome divisiveness? Unity. Unity, not uniformity. If <laughs> uniformity, this idea that we will put on a shirt, and listen, I'm just describing, I'm not judging. I am more Malcolm than I am Martin. Mm -hmm. <sighs> really? Two men who understood the global oppression of black people everywhere. Mm -hmm. 
Two men who understood that we had to build the capacity of black people to understand that there was nothing uniquely wrong with them. Two men who understood that we had to focus on legislative agenda in order to move things forward. Two men who pushed white folks to recognize that tension did not mean that I'm mean, it just means that I want the foot off my neck. Mm -hmm. All right, all right. Yeah. How is it? That 50 years later, we are pitting two dead men against each other. Do I submit? Come on. People will quote James Baldwin and then say, I don't think that gay people should be in my church. Are you kidding me? Hypocrisy is the opposite of me. You cannot. Uphold the person in one instance and then in another disparage who they actually are as people. And I never used to speak on this topic because it wasn't popular to do so until my friend was stabbed 139 times because she was lesbian. Our silence is causing death and destruction. Yeah. yeah. When I came up with the the idea that empathy was going to be the key to help us move the needle forward. It is not because I believe I have the answer. It was King who said nobody knows the answer. But what I feel in my heart is that the people of Kansas City, as the heart of the nation, have the ability to spark an empathy revolution throughout the rest of the country and help this country live up to the things it says it is. When we decide that we're going to focus and we are going to practice unity, you can't do those things without adding in that I am going to create and innovate. And guess who is the best at creating and innovating? We make it, they take it. It doesn't matter what we make. <laughs> so you tell me why somebody steals something that ain't valuable. Mm. That you know it's valuable. You tell me why somebody would say certain things to a child in a school that would crush their spirit if they didn't know it was valuable. Mm -hmm. They know it's valuable. So love your families. Understand that it's because of Jim Crow laws that black people don't show as much affection. Not that there's something uniquely wrong with black people. Tell people that. Educate. Don't try to erase. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. yeah. I regularly get told, you know, Nicole, you gotta stop looking backwards. My friend Jim tells me, we gotta look forward. I am not actually a historian. But what I have come to learn is that if we don't look back at history, it just looks like there's something wrong with the people. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how to do this, but I'm telling everyone who will listen, the first thing that we have to do is recognize that empathy does not mean kindness. It is not sugary sweetness. Mm -hmm. It is understanding that whatever another person thinks, feels, or believes, it makes total sense to them. All right. I can't take my feelings and put them on you. I have to look at your body of work and say, is this a flawed character or a character flaw? 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you know the difference? I can tell you flawed characters by three traits. They are distractions, they are divisive, and they destroy things. Yes. And when you put your energy, your vote, your passion, your commitment behind that, you are saying, I am not interested in progressing the movement. And so the one thing that I hope to leave you with is that I have a dear friend who whenever I talk about all the challenges, because there's plenty of challenges, right? Many. He always sends a call with, well, we got work to do. We, not I. We, not you. We, we, we. You do it your way, I do it my way. But we come together because the ramp needs to be wider. If it's too narrow, you can't get up it. My hope is that as we think about the work of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, which I think it is ironic that on his birthday observed that we do service. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, when the man was dying for us for fair wages. Come on. But okay. I have to eat my own cooking. You do it your way. And we need legislative action mm -hmm. as well as programmatic content. Mm -hmm. I was talking to my son this week. And he was <clears throat> discouraged, that's the word he used. Because it just feels like to him in his 25 years on the planet that his entire life, the prison industrial complex has been the thing. His entire life, people have been homeless and on the street. His entire life, black women have been dying and rates greater than others. My job is to let him know that in my lifetime, some of those dreams, things were not true. Mm -hmm. It was because there are people who are focused, who are united, and who are innovative around hatefulness that yeah. they stay true. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Manipulators and some of the evilest people in the world are empathetic, y'all. Mm -hmm. Stick with me. How can I convince you to do something that is going to harm you unless I know what you're feeling so that I can push that button? Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. So I'm just trying to get well-meaning people to stop doing that thing we do. Mm -hmm. Where you go, oh, I wouldn't do that, so they wouldn't do that. Yeah. Ouch. <laughs> How much proof we need? How much proof we need? So, in the spirit of eating my own cooking, I actually finished this book 23 years later. And I take back everything I said in 2001. Because what Dyson was trying to do 
was to show each of us. Do it depressed. Do it with a storied history. Do it in North Kansas City. Do it at 80 as an octogenarian. Do it as a gender non-binary person. Do it as a creative. Do it as a woman in a pulpit. Just do it. Just do it. If the people who did it before us were not some magical unicorns, they were regular people. Yes. With families who laugh to experience joy, to experience pain. We now know the king suffered with great amounts of depression. Regular people who just decided that they are going to be focused, they are going to practice unity, and they refuse to be distracted. Thank you.
guess his parents did come on up and brought their coming up and brought their introduction. And then um, Dr. Perth is going to come and oversee the panel discussion. All right. First off, um, let me again thank, thank all of you for being here. Our panel is this afternoon or this evening. Uh, it just consists of four preachers. Y'all are going to keep on saying they're my friends. You don't think I'm friends with everybody you can't see. But they are. Uh, first of all, we have uh, Pastor Anthony Mondane uh, because we needed, we needed somebody young on the panel. Because the rest of us got too old. But he is a translator. He's the pastor of the First Christian Church in Independence. Uh, but he is uh, the translator is he is the first African American to serve on the school board in the independent school district. That's, but he's also as a, not only just educated, but he also is a banker. His subject this afternoon or this evening is education and economics. That's a great evening. He's heard as he received off from this afternoon. Also, a transcendent. He is the proud pastor of the Columbia Presbyterian Church, uh, a traditionally predominantly white church in South Kansas City. And they they call him the pastor. They call him the right one. He has the demeanor, the patience, and what I learned from him to love to do a good job. They call the right African American pastor. All of us could not have done it. All of us could not have done it. You also heard from Fred Aaron. He is the pastor of Living Water Christian Church. Uh, some of y'all, he was talking about how we met. Some of y'all remember years ago, Convoy of Hope. He's the one that was the originator of the Convoy of Hope. And uh, because of what he did, we were able to feed thousands of people. Uh, every summer, summer through that, that's where we became friends. Uh, his subject matter is going to be white nationalism and white supremacy. And uh, I'm just up here because it's my church. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be talking about uh, trauma-informed care and housing. One of the things that we tried to do, uh, myself and Dr. Price actually presented, uh, co-presented, during the Concerned Clergy's Conference this year, um, trying to combine these two thought processes of empathy and trauma and being trauma-informed because I think they go together. And the more we can talk about, again, how the history has been traumatic and also now how we can put ourselves in people's shoes to really understand where they're coming from. I struggle with that too. I still struggle with it on, on a monthly basis, on a daily basis, uh, how to try to understand why people do what they do. But I trade on counselor and psychologist, so that's always been my, my thought process, trying to figure out why people do uh, the stuff they do and how can they do the stuff they do and keep on calling themselves Christians. Amen, somebody. And so I'm going to go ahead and type the price to come back. Each one of us is going to take about three to four minutes to introduce our subject matter and talk about it from our perspective. Then like the person can come with questions and we'll kind of answer. Thank you to sit down. <laughs> <laughs> so 
But you gotta make sure, so you want me to just introduce myself or you want my three points in my text. I just need to be clear. So we're all on the same page. No, well, my name is uh, Pastor Greg Ely. I do have the privilege of serving at uh, Colonial Presbyterian Church. Prior to that, I was a pastor at Paseo Baptist Church in the city. So uh, God, in his um, comic way, allowed me to pastor an all-black church in the inner city. And then six years ago, moved me to an all-white church in the suburbs. And, um, and all the joys that come along with that. Uh, it has been uh, a phenomenal opportunity uh, to see God move. Um, one of the things that was a stumbling block um, was when I told my story. I told my story uh, one Sunday. It was actually after the George Floyd incident, uh, murder that uh, occurred. And um, I was asked to tell my story. We were doing online church at the time. You know, it was uh, COVID. And um, after I told my story, I received emails and letters. And I'll tell you my story here in a second. I had emails and letters to come to me from people telling me that they could no longer hear me preach uh, because when they heard me tell my story or when I preached, all they heard was anti-police. And I will begin uh, my story by telling you I am not anti-police. I believe we need police and I believe they serve well. And um, I believe that um, there are a lot of great policemen, but something is wrong. Yeah. And we have to admit that something is wrong. So back in uh, 2006, I was preaching a revival, uh, youth revival in, in uh, Austin, Texas. <clears throat> and on the last evening, I was on my way home, and um, I was on the phone with my wife. She was, at the time we were living in Dallas, so I was on the phone with her. And, and I looked back, and this car was driving behind me like it was going 100 miles, miles an hour, like it was floating. Um, and I just remember saying, man, that car is going, bam, and just slammed it in the back of me. And um, and by the, when my car stopped spinning, I looked out the window and I can still see the development right there today. This uh, body laying uh, underneath uh, this 18 wheeler. Uh, he was about a six foot so black male. He had like braids in his hair. He had a camouflage uh, tank top on and red jeans, and he was laying there. I don't know if he was led dead or alive. He ended up being alive, but he was knocked out. And so, you know, immediately you check your arms and your legs to make sure everything is okay. And then I pushed the door open because the airbag had blew, uh, smoke is blowing everywhere. I pushed the door open and I run out the car and there are 10 police officers pointing guns at me, running at me, telling me, get out, get out. And I put my hands up in there around you in the middle of I-35 in Austin, Texas. And the uh, Travis County uh, Sheriff's Office are all running at me, guns are blazing, get on the ground. So I get on the ground. Put my hands behind my back. They handcuffed me. That's why when I see the video of George Floyd being kneed, that was the position that I was in on the ground on I-35. And I was in handcuffs, not harmful. And then they sick the dog. And they released their dog. And I still to this day have the scars, the markings of that dog on my back. So when I walk around the house, my wife and my children are reminded of that evening. And they didn't know if daddy was coming home. And when they finally realized that I wasn't the person, the guy uncuffed me and said, we saw we thought you were the other guy. And uh, of course, we had them take care of that. But then when I moved to Kansas City, I moved up north. And the first six months I was here, I was stopped six times by the same police officer. Once because 
my license plate was crooked. Once because he said, what, I, what was I doing up driving this early in the morning with a hoodie on? Um, once I got pulled over right here in Kansas, Missouri, as I'm pulling into my parking spot at the Salem Baptist Church, and I said, my name is on the sign right there. You know, and he said, I couldn't get you for uh, not having a seatbelt on. I'm not saying that we don't need police. I believe we need police, but something is wrong. I believe there's a training issue. There's, uh, I had a conversation with a previous uh, chief of police in Kansas City. He said, we don't do enough threat perception training for our police officers. Teaching them how to know when there is a threat. Teaching them how to de-escalate, not um, uh, escalate a situation. I just believe that something needs to be done. I want our police around us, but through our efforts in here, at least in Kansas City, we have to demand that there is better training. Thank you. My name is Anthony J. Mondain. Uh, I pastor Restoration Life Church in Independence, Missouri. Uh, I'm a husband, father, uh, and I managed a bank, NC Bank. I'm proud of the work that I do. I've been in banking for 10 years now. Um, I've committed a lot of my life to serving the community um, and, and providing financial education and bridging the gaps um, in, in, in the wealth gap, basically, uh, in our community. Uh, most recently, I worked for We Development Federal Credit Union, which uh, the whole purpose of the credit union is to be in the inner city and provide solutions for families and people who are attacked by predatory lending. That is something that I am personally very, very moved by, and I will speak of these issues until I cannot speak anymore. Uh, there's a very serious issue when it comes to what's fair and what's right in underserved communities. If you notice, you will see a predatory lender everywhere in these communities, and that, that's intentional. That is not an accident, that is not a coincidence, that's not a, oh, oops, okay. Um, and, and there are targets in these communities, and the targets look like me. They do. Uh, and after researching, I recognize that there are more people of color that take advantage of these lending opportunities than others do. But when you think about that, there's a method behind all of those things. When people will come to me and sit in front of me and tell me, Anthony, I need a loan uh, to pay off this payday loan. I need a loan to pay my rent. I need a loan for the, and these are things where, I mean, I, I'm, I'm duty bound by a job and my employer to do the best that I can to make a good loan. But I also recognize that sometimes people just don't have other resources. They don't have other choices, or at least that's what they believe. So my job is to educate those people who feel that their last option and only option is to go and give themselves to payday lenders. Uh, my recommendation to you and to anyone you love and know is to never, ever, ever, ever get a payday loan. It's never worth it at all. They will structure things so precisely down to the 10th year, the day of the 10th year, when that uh, that time expires lawfully, okay? Um, 
they will come and knock on your door and get that money as, and however they can. If it's $200, it's three, whatever. They will do it. And in my community, we are so used to just surviving. Getting by. Making ends meet. Doing what I got to do. Well, the white man, this. We are so conditioned to that mindset. And I, I, I will fight until there's no more, no more fight left to educate not just people of color, but all people. Because it's not just people of color. Let me be clear. It's not just us. Okay. But the concern is the majority of us. Okay. And so... I want to spend my time and my effort not just preaching about Jesus Christ, which is my primary responsibility, but I also care about the whole person. I want to tell you how to be wealthy, and I want to tell you how to actually go apply for a loan. I want to tell you what you can do to get approved and how you can structure your life so much so where when you go to that lender, you can be ready to, to, to get a good loan and how to look for the best rates and all those things. That's my focus. And encouraging people in my community that you don't just have to accept anything. We have options. And I think one of the biggest downfalls, one of the biggest downfalls in our community is just accepting what's given or accepting what's available. We are at a place where so many people in different spaces are fighting with us we we have we can demand we, we can make certain requests that you know my grandparents weren't able to make, and there are spaces that we can flow down that that are historic. They call my election historic, and after further research, not only am I the first person of color on the board of education in my city, there's never been a person of color elected to any office. And someone asked me, one of the news reporters. Asked me, they said, Well, why do you think you're the first person of color to run? And I had to stop saying, No, ma'am, you are not correct. We do run. We are a balance. We're not elected. I am the first elected person of color in the history of Venezuela. I'm proud of that. And I want that to make change and create. Um, widen the the, the, the the curb slant, what is the term? <laughs> curb cut. Amen. I want to continue to do that, but my job is in vain if I'm it. So there is work to do. This room is full of people who are obviously interested in progressing forward. You are not here accidentally or unintentionally. You are here on purpose, even if you don't understand or agree with everything being said tonight. You are here very intentionally. So I encourage each of you to become a sponge and take in everything that we are sharing from our perspective and match it with yours and ask yourself, what can I do to work together to be the we? Because it's not a them, it's not a day, it's a us. We all have work to do. And I want to be a part of that work continually. Yeah. I will love capture. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Okay. 
man. Um, you know, I grew up in the Northland. I went to Park Hill High School. Uh, I grew up in a very white high school. And I grew up Southern Baptist in a very white church. Okay? <laughs> and, and I came to Jesus at that church. And, uh, and so I was discipled by white Southern Baptists, right? And we had only a few black families at Park Hill High School in the 70s. Very few. They're all friends of mine. We all did sports together. Uh, I, I didn't realize there was a race problem. I was in an almost all-white school with like maybe three black families. We all did sports together. We're all friends. And I just assumed that this is how the world worked. Black and white people get along, and there's way more white people than black people, you know? And um, I never talked to those friends about what it was like growing up black in a mostly white high school. I, I didn't even think to assume that it was different just because we were friends. We were, you know, it didn't feel different to me. Um, I actually reached out to one of those friends uh, just this past week. I said, hey, we're doing this MLK thing. We we're going to get together and have that conversation, and I was hoping she'd be able to make it the weather like I've got her schedule this week. But uh, nonetheless, um, you know, I went to uh, Baptist universities, Baptist seminaries. We didn't celebrate MLK. You know, the crazy thing is, I, I never even put two and two together, and didn't I, I didn't really realize the racist history of the denomination that I was raised in. And why we didn't celebrate MLK. All I heard about was the things that uh, you brought up in the front end of the book. Oh, MLK wasn't a big guy, you know, like da 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 da, you know. Hmm. Right? So, so, I mean, it was, and then, um, but I kept, I always had black friends, and in my brain, I just didn't see the issues. Uh, I moved to the, back to the Northland in 1990 after college and seminary and on staff at a white church and then I started church in a mostly white community right and grow this church but um, we had some diversity had some black some Asian some some Latino uh, Greg's Greg yeah Greg came all the time and, um, but when I read that article on the murder factory it's like oh man because we are already serving in the homeless and in a lot of different ways in the urban core. But that's when I really started an in-depth process of trying to connect with black pastors. Michael, one of the first ones, but Greg too. Greg, uh, what, what, what year did you start at Paseo? Uh, yeah, so about right at the same time. Michael and Greg have been two very close friends. And I, I just talked, my experience with these two guys, hearing, oh, is that right? <laughs> We're dating ourselves. Michael and I are the same age, but I'm, I think I'm older, right? Yeah. All right, anyway. So, I'm the elder. All right, so, <laughs> But nonetheless, um, just hearing their stories, yeah, you know, I didn't know what it was like to be a black parent raising kids uh, in a white world and how you had to raise them to not get killed <laughs> by any number of angles, right? I didn't know that stuff. I didn't know what it was like to be black and pull into a white gas station and get get mistreated and discriminated against because you're black. I, I didn't I didn't know all of that. 
And so just the relationships and the friendships and just hearing the stories. And I think one of the big things is that if we don't understand our, each other's trauma and we don't understand each other's history, we, we can't do empathy. Is that, would that, would that be a good statement? And so the, I, I became immersed in the black community because of Greg and Michael and friendship and relationship. And then my heart just grew bigger and bigger and bigger for the black community. Um, I'm very disappointed in my white evangelical friends <laughs> in America, you know? Um, but I tell you this, I do try to keep an ear to that community, and there are a few white evangelicals who have pretty big platforms who do speak out against Christian nationalism, authoritarianism, and racism. One of the guys is a guy named Phil Bisher, who, who is the creator of Veggie Tales. Like most white Christian, evangelical Christians, raise their kids on Phil Vischer's Veggie Tales. Did black parents do that? You did, all right. So, Veggie Tale guy, right? Well, he came out right after this. He didn't know what it is, right? I know. It's a white thing. Anyway, so. Um, so, Calvin, were you raised on Veggie Tales? All right. <laughs> <laughs> you are to connection. That's right. So Phil, by the way, after George Floyd, he came out with a 17-minute video that's the best, shortest, pithy video I've seen yet on white supremacy, white racism, uh, and I mean the racism of the white community and white privilege. Basically, white supremacy and white privilege by white evangelical, boom, 17 minutes. You can look it up. Holy Post, Race in America. And I posted that. I tried to get it out to many of my white friends as possible. And, you know, when I was pastor in the Northland, when we first met, I was trying to move white people down to the core and begin to build relationships. And once we build relationships and hear each other's stories and histories and trauma, we begin to break down barriers and begin to love each other. And so that has been a passion of mine, and it still is, and I had to take a sabbatical for a while from my own trauma, and then I'm back. And then, you know, Greg, I don't know if you remember, we did an MLK thing one time, and there's there another white pastor, and remember he got up and he said he grew up in northern Wisconsin, and he said there wasn't a black person within seven counties of him. And he said, we Swedes didn't get along with the Norwegians. And I thought, you know, we human beings can certainly inflict a lot of harm on each other. It doesn't even have to be black-white, you know? It can just be human to human. And so um, we need to dive into trauma and history and listen and then build relationships around the healing of that. And that's a big passion. And I think that... The more white people we can help understand white privilege and white supremacy and hear people's personal stories through relationship to understand that, it'll, it'll make a difference. And so that's a big passion, right? So I am uh, incredibly passionate. And, and a big thing, too, was like, hey, I didn't grow up celebrating MLK. I want to influence as many white people as I can to dive into that, celebrate that, and to be a part of that. You know, 150 years, slavery's been ended, 60 years of the civil rights movement. We've had a black president. There's so many white people who say, what's the problem? 
And it's all there. All you have to do is listen to people, listen to their histories, listen to their trauma, and you'll begin to see with new eyes the issue that is at stake. The system is still rigged for white people, 100%. And we need to do work. There's way more work to do for the civil rights movement. So that's mine. <laughs> so we, um, I went introduced to this work. I really became more aware of what was really going on once I left Kansas City and joined the military. I won't go into that whole story. It'll take way longer than y'all want to be here. Um, but I really have decided, just by what I believe God has called me to do, is try to get the church to really understand how we have to deal with people's trauma and deal with it in a different way. So one of the moves God got commissioned me to do once we started this vocation was a move from judgment to empathy. The church has spent hundreds of years judging folk because of what they said or what they did or how and I could be a poster child for it. But but we we gotta move from just telling people that they're wrong to understanding why they did what they did. That's that's what empathy is. And we have have to be honest about the fact that what African Americans and blacks, whatever we're going to call ourselves this century, because we were colored, and then we were Negroes, then we were black, and then we were African American, whatever, and none of those represent a nation. Uh, but the reality is the trauma has gone on ever since the first ship landed on whatever the shore it was, and it has not ended. I have no hope the politics will fix this. What I do believe is those of us who have been called by God to do something different can't fix it or we will face it. Because you can't fix what you're not willing to face. And it's going to take some hard conversations, and that's why we don't talk, because the body don't want to have the hard conversations. It's going to take us disagreeing on stuff. Um, so, so everybody is speaking from their passion, so I've got 15 of them, I can't tell you all of them. But housing was the issue that got brought to my mind when I went through the racial equity training. Uh, and one of the things that came to mind real quickly was, I know for a fact growing up, our parents were told, buy a house, get a 30 year loan, get it paid off, and you, you've, uh, you've made it. However, after I got grown, I figured out everybody wasn't educated <laughs> Housing, the housing, the home itself is supposed to be one of the things that help you develop wealth. Not in our community though, because we kept them for 30 years, by the time 30 years was up, the house wouldn't work much, and the kids that grew up in the house really didn't want it. And the folk that moved out of the neighborhood to get away from us, now we go back in the neighborhood, buying up the houses cheap, rehabbing them, and then sell them now. The house my parents grew up in, if they rehabbed it and put it on the market, would be worth $250,000 today. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. So, so my story is this. I went to Lead Elementary School, 3745 Bennett Boulevard, Kansas, Missouri, 64128. <laughs> Uh, when I went there in the, from kindergarten to second grade, it was a mixed school. Gym class, the subject matter was learning how to square dance. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
It was not a black school, trust me. But from 1967 up to 1970, we saw total transformation of that school. And all the race kids moved, and the school became almost entirely black by the time I was in the third grade. I visibly saw the white flag from the community. There were individuals, I know for a fact, one of my best friends, I hated my name because it was five Michaels in class. And so uh, Michael Jones, who lived across the street, his father was a doctor. His father was white, his mother was black, and he came to school with best friends. Matter of fact, my mother was the homekeeper. While we were in school, she was the maid for the house. They came to school and said, we leave, like, we're moving. I said, why are you moving? My dad just said, we gotta move. What we didn't know was the white families in the neighborhood were sent letters saying the blacks are moving in and it's time for you all to move out. And what was developed then was what we know as Fort Parkway. Benton Boulevard used to be the place where doctors and lawyers and rich folks stayed. All right, the schools on 37th and Benton. All those individuals moved out. You literally, when we grew up in grade school, you could go across the street and talk to a lawyer. You would go around the corner and talk to the doctor. The teachers went to the same church you went to. So you got in trouble in school, you got in trouble in church on Sunday too. If you're not told everybody at church, how you contacted the we literally saw that community turn from a mixed community to an all-black community within about four or five years. Then the last thing I'll say is, and then we decided that once we started making money, the best thing we could do is get out of the neighborhood. Want to be successful? You got to move. And back then, Grammy was the place to move. Grammy ain't place to move now, is it? Y'all ain't talking to me. They wouldn't let us in Raytown. They kept, they kept Raytown locked down. You couldn't drive through Raytown with someone that's not down either. I remember playing basketball in Raytown and leaving the court. And no matter what Sunday it was, because it was a car of six, seven, eight black kids, we get pulled over every time from Raytown to 63rd Street. Simply because it was a car loaded full of black kids. And they knew it was there. We went over there and played every, every week. So the housing issue, I believe, is the house. And I think the church has to get more astute on how to help individuals become homeowners, how to get their loans, how to, if we are get to get America is gonna be capitalistic until the day we die. Either you got it or you don't. In order to operate in the system, you gotta have some capital. But we gotta change our mindset about how that happens. Because the tra tra traditional ways have kept us right where we are. a hard job for several reasons. They call me the great debater and I've got plenty of things I could debate about what people have said. And I'm not going to. And the other thing is, every single last one of these speeches took three times as much time as they had. How am I going to moderate this panel? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad somebody screamed out empathy. I understand exactly what they think you don't believe, which is that they can take as long as they want when they have the microphone. So how are we going to do this? Um, you know, interestingly enough, I think when people hear 
uh, black men talk about their experiences with police. Uh, they think it's kind of an isolated situation and event. Uh, but when I was 15 years old, uh, studying for my U.S. history test with Jean Blair, who was my high school history teacher, uh, my mom didn't lock the front door because she was the community cook. And uh, so it was, it was unlocked. And I heard this really loud noise at the door. My mother was gone. And then I heard twice more. And the next thing I know, there are 10 or 15 police officers in our living room with guns pointed to my 15-year-old head. I was on the floor for almost two hours. They brought in dogs who went through our house, turned everything over. The dogs found a bag of potpourri. By the time it was all said and done, all I heard them say to my mother was, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Wrong house. <laughs> we had to fix our own door. And what I hate, uh, Pastor Ely, is that you have to start with a caveat. Yep. Yeah. Not all police officers are bad. Yeah, you know. I think we need police. Yeah. And the burden of having to do that is solely on people who are in a oppressed state. Mm -hmm. It never happens to anybody else. And in my work, if 1% of the people are awful, I would say they're probably more than that. Um, it is my job, if I care about the community of practice, to act those people, yep. to shun them, to not recommend them. And so I want you to talk more about policing and from your perspective, what you think are the key challenges, but I'm gonna I'm a push you to leave out all the caveats because when we're trying to get people to change because of facts, right. okay. yeah, I appreciate you, um, you know, calling that out. You know, my, my brothers and sisters, uh, part of our Kingdom Wonders team at Colonial, uh, thank you for uh, Maureen and Jody for being here tonight representing us. There's a level of PTSD that comes with telling my story. Um, because as I stated before, when I was asked to tell my story, um, it was met with uh, uh, with turbulence and and pushback, and um, and actually, the second time I referred to my story in a sermon, I didn't even tell the whole story. I just referred to it because I was trying to show them how I was able to interact with with someone and God gave me an opportunity to share the message with him because I could understand because he was talking about police and I was like hey I understand I showed him my scar and I was just thinking how God would give you an opportunity and give you um, the message the word to speak to someone and I got an email after that that said you keep bringing that up and because of that my son being a police officer I am going to have to leave the church Erasure. You know, and so that is partly most of the reason why I feel the need to have to disclaim before I tell the story. But I said, I got, I raised two boys. And I say raised now because my youngest son turned 18 in November. 
Uh, Mama said he's still a baby, but I had to teach them how to drive in Liberty, Missouri, being a black man. I had to go pick my son up because he was playing with some friends in an elementary school and get my son out the back of the police car. My son was pulled over because he was speeding. Got a ticket. He thought he paid it. Got a, a message in the mail that it wasn't paid because he actually paid the fees, not the ticket. Went to the courthouse to go pay the ticket. The guy says, oh, the standard procedure is I have to put your son in handcuffs. So it's those type things that make me feel like we have an issue. My son was jogging in my neighborhood and all I could see was a mile upper as he ran off in the distance and I couldn't see his silhouette anymore. And he turned the corner. So yes, yeah, it's, it's a very sensitive issue. Yeah, I appreciate you uh, for sharing that and sharing the, the trauma that happens and most of the time, people think about trauma related to black people. Mr. Ailey, I want you to talk about white supremacy, but I, I, I want to qualify it a little bit, okay? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, Fred, I want, I want you to qualify this a little bit because I'm going to share the work of Reskomanakin, who's done my grandmother's hands, if you all are not familiar with the work, it's releasing racialized trauma from the body. And the way this book is set up, this, uh, uh, is that he has an entire section about the police body. And he suggests that the trauma that gets passed down from watching other people harm other people all day needs to be released from the body, and when it's not, you pass that harm through other people. Mm. Okay. So he says it's not about training, actually, because you're making split-second decisions, and whatever the body is feeling is going to come out when you're making split-second decisions. And so when we talk about what does Kansas City North look like in Park Hill, and I wonder sometimes why do we not have the conversation about why independence is white? Why Kansas City North is white? Why, when all the mixed folks, the mixed neighbors move out and it's all black, is there an insinuation that that black neighborhood is now bad? When nothing changed except for the color of the people living in the homes. When someone talks about why black people are subjected to predatory lynching, why we don't go back and say, my family had their 100 acres stolen, I would be rich if had it not been for the white people who did these things. And so when we don't talk about what it looks like to stand there and watch your grandfather hang a person, there is trauma passed down. And white people don't want to deal with that trauma, which is why I believe they can't handle any kind of tension related to racism. So I'd be curious to know. I know that was a lot. <laughs> I'd be curious to know, when you discuss how white privilege manifests itself in our community, and I'm not, I'm talking about our Kansas City metropolitan area, what else can we do? Because you're doing a great job with your personal relationships. What else can we do? 
Wow. Right. That's not. But this book um, that you just read, my, my grandmother's hand, I just read this. So Bill Rose Stein is the regional overseer for the Disciples of Christ in Kansas City. And I just, re- I just went through a process to get my standing with the Disciples of Christ. And I, Bill had me read uh, this book. And, and I'm in a two-year training with Mindful Meditation with Tara Brock and Jack Holmfield. And so his book, like I'd like to get him here to Kansas City. This, uh, this resonance. Is... All you need is 50 grand. That's his... Is that what it is? Uh-huh. Dang. All right. Are any of you really multimillionaire or people listening? My friends in New York. All right. Anyway, uh, who are watching tonight. Um, but... Um, no, but I think we could get, we talked about this, Michael, Daryl Forte and Stacey Graves and do a, a, a white, a, you know, a, a blue body, black body trauma talk with this guy. I think yeah. it would be amazing. I think we could pull it together. But, um, I got a no, question. I got a we, question. When you read it, did we, you do the exercises? We created, I did it. Okay. And we created uh, action steps that I'm going to go over before we leave tonight that are future things, not just an event tonight, but things that we want to un- unroll through this whole year. And then I think we could pack this place out next year for another MLK event yeah. and keep building a community that cares, that's moving the civil rights movement forward and just, and for Kansas City. And just, keep expanding, idea. just keep expanding through relationships primarily, but organizing all kinds of events. So I'll go over a action step thing before we leave tonight of, of that very you want me to do it now? Do you have one of those for everybody? We have one for everybody and uh Matt, yeah, can, you, can, you, make so that, can you make that uh, visual for the people who are watching online as well, this bookmark? So yeah, we're gonna hand this out. So the next thing is gonna be by the way, the sponsors of this event are the Concerned Clergy Coalition, uh Missouri Faith Voices. The Oasis Church, and I have a nonprofit called Spirituality Adventures, and those are the sponsors for this event. The next action step is going to be Missouri Faith Voices on February 2nd, 3rd. It's going to happen right here. Uh, it's going to be a, a justice revival service on Friday night, and then Saturday they're going to do uh, a training event. Uh, Michael can speak more to that. The next thing, uh, Anthony Mundane is going to do a Wealth Harvest Workshop Saturday, March 16th, right here at 10 a.m. And then uh, we've got another faith, Missouri Faith Voices event happening April 12th and 13th. And then Michael, you should share, Michael just did a pilgrimage, a civil rights pilgrimage down in, uh, in, in Georgia. And he said it was so impactful. And I said, well, let's get a bus and take a group from Kansas City down there and do it again and make it aim. So that, we're looking at the end of July for that kind of a thing. So I'm, I'm wanting to build relationships, break down the barriers through uh, through understanding our trauma and our history and loving each other, and then continue to do events that, that let's do civil rights here in Kansas City and make an impact. There's still a lot of work to be done. I love it. I'm glad you put this handout together because you was you were ready. Somebody must have told you. Hey, I was ready. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pastor Brooks went to Birmingham, Alabama. Right, to Selma and Montgomery to be able to see uh, some of the work that had been done there, the, uh, the lynching museum. 
You have to send it to me. Send me your question. I'll get to uh, ask it or you know, just work next to me. Because right. while we're listening, I think it's important to just know the, the burden is not just on black people. It, it keeps going back to there's nothing uniquely wrong with black people. We have all been reared in this system. We all have trauma from this system. And what is amazing about black people is that we have managed to still maintain culture and music and food and all the beautiful things that make us human. Meanwhile, sometimes when you ask what are the benefits of being white, folks are like, what do you mean? And when you give up being Norwegian or Scottish or Welsh to be white, you give up food and music and culture. And that's just unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. And we have to talk about the, the fact that racism is hurting everybody. We talk about it as if it's only hurting black people, which is part of what our challenge and our problem and our problem is. That police officer or those police officers who sick the dogs on you have trauma from that event. Might not recognize it, but they do. Give them a questionnaire. You go watch somebody else be harmed, maimed. It's a trauma event. Now Pastor Mundane, you um, are talking about economics. She gave me her whole phone. I mean, she ain't doing nothing wrong. <laughs> she gave me her whole phone. I mean, I think she could have got cash out on here. I would pay the Just don't want to accept it. 
they will make most the most ridiculous decisions. I'm not going to my mom's funeral. I'm, you know, I'm not going to give my kid their cancer medicine, knowing that that's not reality. And so the question is, how do we get people to even care about these things? And that question was posed to me when I was talking about racial justice to a group of this city's most, I mean, we're talking wealthiest citizens. Mm -hmm. He said, Nicole, thank you so much. Pause. I really appreciate what you shared here today. Pause. When I go back to my home and my gay community, none of this stuff really impacts me. So I get it intellectually. I was hoping you were going to help me get it emotionally. I said, did he just tell me he don't care about what I just said? Yes. And in the spirit of not judging and stepping into Empathy, which may remember this is not sugary kindness. I am not in agreement. I am understanding that what he's saying makes total sense to him. Right? Based on his limits. And that is where I said, wow, we have got to find ways to build empathy. That's the one thing. What you got? Education and economics. How does the quality of education directly impact economics? I may not have a very popular statement. I'm just going to be honest. Um, honest for you. I'm going to be truthful. Okay. Um, the statement or my statement might be very popular, but I've accepted in my life that I will not be able to give people even a reason to understand my truth or the truth that exists. Some people will just not understand that, be it blatant or the inability to adapt to reality, whatever that is for them. Uh, so at 32, I've decided not to waste a whole lot of time on convincing people who obviously don't care to care, people who will meet my reality and my lived experience with but what is happening? Like, I just, I don't have a whole lot of energy. And I think we were at a breakfast, and I had to just say that. I just, guys, I didn't even apologize. I'm just like, this, I just don't have the energy. How many of y'all feel the same way, though? You think, it's not, you think that's not a popular idea? How many of y'all, just show your hands, feel the same way? I, let, me, let me say this. I, 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 come from the, I come from the church um, where where. You are to forgive, and I, and I support that. I'll forgive you. I'm not going to waste my time convincing you anymore, though, at all. If it is difficult for you to understand that black people are mistreated and, and treated differently than you are, you have to be in a space in your life where you choose not to accept that truth. And it's just... Yeah, so I've, I've watched this. I, I had a grandfather who was a black nationalist I, who, who practiced Islamic beliefs. Who, I mean, the whole gamut. I, I've seen so much in my life to where I'm just, I don't have the space anymore. And so facts are facts. There was something that, that Pastor Brooks said that I'm committed not saying anymore. A courageous conversation. What courageous conversation? It's, it doesn't take courage. It takes truth. What's the truth? 
If you can't handle the truth. Hey, I just want to speak to that. You know, I appreciate you asking that question because that's something that we run into. You know, as I said before, that um, uh, I pastor in Columbia Presbyterian at 95th in the morning. Uh, with the big church with the big white columns, um, and our church's name is Colonial. You know, so I'm not even going to go into that. I'm not even going to go into that because last time I brought it up, it almost split the church. So I'm going to leave that And this is being live streamed, so I will deal with the damages later. <laughs> Hey, well, as my, as my dad said, I was, I, I was looking for a job when I found this one. <laughs> but um, that's, you know, one of the kingdom one is seen that we have. In 2018, I preached a sermon entitled, I Have a Dream, in honor of the uh, 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin King. Uh, but it was verse from John 17, um, where Jesus says, I pray that they are one as we are one. And my, my thesis basically was that. This dream that Martin King had was not originated from him. He just picked the baton up from Jesus, which means it's a commandment from the church. Yeah. From that, uh, we had a group of people come to me and say, I want to know more. You know, so they came and we had breakfast. We decided to do be the bridge to study together, had small groups. Um, and we also had, you know, I got the emails about the case, past life, and all this other kind of stuff around that kind of deal. And some of the questions they asked me at times is that how can we get people more involved in this. And we tried our best. We do things. We've got a couple of weekends coming up for MLK. But I am determined that I'm going with the goers. You know, what you call them? Goers. I'm going with the goers. Going with the goers. Exactly. Those people, you know, people of peace is another term that some people use. There are people that God will strategically plant in your pathway who are moving in that direction already. Because I don't have time to be going back to Egypt. Yeah. I was not built for that. I was not built. To lead people back to Egypt. Yeah. I just don't have the DNA for that. So I appreciate people like Jody and Marine and others uh, in our church, in our 93% church since I've been there because we were 99. Praise God, we're making progress. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there are people who are built to be able to go into spaces and, and be the, the, the first to, to have the temperament to be able to do that. So bless you. I will, I will add you. So my prayer is to take you to the front. Um, there's about there's about 10% of people in the world who are like, yes, let's go forward. And maybe maybe 20, I think, sometimes. Probably 20. And then there's another group of people, the 10%, who are like, I don't care, I don't want to, I don't want to go. And we always overcorrect to that group of people when there's about 70% of the folks in the middle who are just indifferent. The opposite of love is not hate. What is it? It is indifference. It, it's, it's indifference. And so if I employ you to do anything, it's to stop thinking about the most hateful and think about the indifferent. The people who can be persuaded if somebody would just Educating a little more. Mr. Fitzgerald. Well, I, I think I need to push back on something that I think you said. Uh huh, go for it. Did you say that when the white police officers sick the dog on the pastor, they got trauma? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you for pushing back on it. So, the question if you're on live stream is that when the police officers sick the dog on 
uh, Pastor Ely that they felt trauma. Pastor Brooks, is it a trauma? Is it considered a trauma if I watch, even if I'm the perpetrator, watch somebody else be maimed by a dog? Yes. One of the definitions of trauma is secondary trauma. It didn't. You didn't. It didn't happen to you. But you, but you saw it. And if you saw it, you can't unsee it. If, and, and you had some feeling attached to it, even if your blue uniform tells you to ignore it. Any human that sees somebody get hurt, you go, you can you can watch a movie and start crying. You ain't in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Push, come on, give me another. Well, the thing that I know enough folks who would be able to detach themselves from that action and say, I had to do that. Yeah. Because the position I was put in. And what I did was wrong. In fact, what I did was necessary to protect myself yes. and my community. Yes. So there are different types of empathy, just like there are different types of trauma. I can tell myself something that's intellectual, that's mental, but the body keeps the score. Somatic empathy, somatic trauma. My body experienced that trauma even though I have told myself it did not. And so the more I try to tell myself it didn't, the worse I am actually. When I get ready to go back out into the world and I see another person who looks like him, now I'm both, now I'm unconsciously blowing that trauma through more people. So it's even worse if I mentally told myself it's not a thing. Which is why... Oh. I got a question. The other thing is, how many times has somebody said something to you, it hurts you, but you said it didn't hurt because you don't want to admit to them that it hurt. And you may not even admit it at that moment. But after afterwards, you start processing what happened. That sticks and stones, crazy scenario we quoted when we were kids, sticks and stones and broken bones and words. And we like broke and found out words do hurt. So, but don't put no stick on my shoulder because you know what that means if you like, oh, Frank. I'm, I'm so glad we've had an opportunity to talk about this. Because too many people don't understand the way we hold traumas in our bodies. Um, and some of the work of uh, Monaghan is trauma from generations before. So, he, and he has you do these exercises. You don't even have to read the book if you're not a reader. It's more important to do the exercises than to do the reading. And the sole purpose is to push past what your brain thinks to release the trauma from your body so that when you do have to make that initial response, it is one that you can be more thoughtful and uh, less tr- less harmful to other people. And it's hard to get through that book because you're looking at the abusers as being abused. But that's what they are. That's what that's what they are. That's Bruce. He tell me to call him Michael, but I can't. The uh I read a book called Working Our Way Home. It was a, a book from a homeless ex-con and a millionaire art dealer. Highly recommend. Best book I read last year. Denver Moore, who was the homeless ex-con, said that if every single church adopted one person without a home, we could eradicate the houseless situation in our cities. Just one. We know what to do. There's so much affluence. 
in our nation. We don't have to have people living outside of that. I remember once we had a, an exchange student stand with us and they were asking, what are those houses behind the house? And I said, houses behind the house, what are you talking about? Those houses behind the house. And I said, oh, those are garages. And they said, what? it's for the car. And they said, you have houses for your cars. Well, Lord. Some of us got three, four, five houses for our cars. So, could you explore the connection between housing insecurity and psychological trauma? So many people will say that people who are homeless are out there, are homeless because they have a mental health condition. But I think if I had to live outside, I'd probably develop a mental health condition. So, what's your experience working in the space, and what would be your best suggestion for the folks listening? So, I'll, I'll agree with the conversation about the church, because uh, I'm always coming back to that. I really believe if the church wants to, we can fix everything that's wrong with America. That's, that's what I believe. Everything? Everything. Wow. I, I, because we're not supposed to be looking at the government to answer the problems. Government should be looking at us answer because we're showing them the model. Amen. We should have the answers. They should be knocking on our door saying, how can we deal with it? We, I've been back in Kansas City now for 26 years. And I started here working in the homeless population with Soul Park Radio Center. It don't take 25 years to solve homelessness. We know exactly how to fix it. We just don't want to. We don't want to spend the money. We don't want to spend the time, and we don't want to give the people that do want to do it the resources to make it happen. Now, we get money and everything else. When I was in, at City Hall, we had over 250 vacant houses in the city that know what to do with. And a homeless population that resided mostly downtown. You got 250 houses, and you got people that are homeless. Not a garage, a house that is livable. And you don't want to put these people, why? And what all of us need to understand is there's money in poverty. There's money to be made when people don't have resources because they are going to do whatever it takes. They are going to commit crimes. Now you can't put them in jail. Now you can build a new jail. See how it works? Yeah. So why would you build a brand new jail knowing that it's not the crime that's the person's problem? Oh, who don't know mental health is a major issue? And dealing with the prison population, they're individual, and, and, and trust me when I tell you, the people committing crimes, they ain't dumb, they ain't stupid, they're just poor. And during this time, I promise you, you go to any store around here, most of them call the police on somebody that's stealing who knew they were going to be called on and knew they were going to be locked up because guess what, now they're sleeping out on the street in the cold tonight. Yeah. They're going to take them to jail and guess what the jail got? Food and heat. And at best they're going to do about two, three months. How long was winter last? I know for a fact they would commit crimes in November and December just to get locked up so they'd be locked up during the winter time. And I asked, why do you keep on coming back? Because I'm getting three meals. A bed to sleep in and it's warm in here. 
How long did it take us to raise minimum wage to fifteen dollars? And could anybody in here, based on your lifestyle, live your lifestyle making fifteen dollars an hour? So if it's not good enough for us, why would we say it's good enough for somebody else? Fifteen dollars an hour with two, three kids that eat. You should have made better choices. So it's it's yeah. that's what people say. And I'll end with this, it's 8.30, so, so, so let me end with this because we, we're talking about anything we need to. But my personal struggle in 2024 that started probably around in 2020 is if people look like me that don't think this is still a problem. Yeah. Who have adopted this assimilation to the point they don't even want to come back to the neighborhood and fix what's wrong. We're living now with like the second or third gen, and I'm not mad at nobody. We fought for y'all to live wherever you want to live, to raise your kids wherever you want to live, to raise your kids. But there's a problem now because there's a disconnect from people who have resources and have ability to make some changes, and they're saying that ain't that ain't my neighborhood. Until you get pulled over by the police four times in glass on. One last question, we yes. Yes. Uh, good evening. I have a question for my dear friend Fred. Um, he said, uh oh, because you know, I'm a little crazy. Um, as a fellow graduate of Park Hill, uh, where the number of black people didn't change too much from when we graduated, um, as a Southern Baptist, now, I would like to know, even though you are getting into other spaces, how are you pushing uh, this racial healing agenda into the Southern Baptist relationships that you have uh, to hold them accountable to where we go forward? <laughs> he didn't turn away. Yeah. That's a good son. Yeah. Oh. No, I. So I haven't. You know, I the church that I started in the Northland. I went right from Southern Baptist, and I started this non-denominational church called Vineyard. So I haven't been a Southern Baptist since 1990. But um, I was working on a second doctorate in Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in the Hebrew Bible. Just just before I had my uh, my unplanned sabbatical. And uh, and so I still have a lot of relationships in the Southern Baptist world. And uh, and honestly, you know, when we were doing Convoy and stuff like that, I actually had most of the larger Southern Baptist churches uh, in Pleasant Valley and, um, you know, through some of the bigger Southern Baptist churches in the Northland, yeah. Yeah, so we, so I was able to to move some of those. Um, you know, I'm, I'm more progressive now, so I don't know how my Southern Baptist friends still. Uh, but I, I'm gonna, I, I, these things that we're doing that I just went through, um, I'll reach out to all of my friends and just challenge them to be a part of it. We and we did get them involved in the convoy stuff that we did. And so uh, we had we were we were moving hundreds of 
white North Rangers into the core. I remember when I first started doing it, people were worried they were getting shot. They just came down to the core, you know. So, uh, <laughs> that's, I mean, where she grew up of, right? I mean, uh, you my, know, face, my face wasn't because I don't believe you. Yeah, okay. That's literally, I mean, people are, well, if I go down there, I'll get shocked. You know, that's like, <laughs> yeah. So, so real, real quick question What was the name of that, the, the VeggieTale author who made the video? What's the name of that Phil video? Phil Fisher. Although the video is, if you Google Holy Post, Race in America. Holy Post Race in America. Somebody get that. Is it is it in, in the veggie channel? It's right on here? YouTube. It's on, on YouTube. YouTube. Okay. And um, is it like a cartoon or no? No, no. It's no. just filmed, just ripping through seventeen minutes of why there's still white privilege and white supremacy in America. Basically, he starts with the with when racism. I mean, when slavery was ended, how the past vagrancy laws so that. They basically arrested black men who didn't have homes and put them right back into slavery again. He went into the redlining, he went into the war on drugs, which was basically a war on black people. He went into, you know, the FHA loaning practices with housing. I mean, he just went boom, 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 boom. 17 minutes for white people to understand, hey, there's still an issue, there's still a problem. And so we've got to partner with people who will speak out like that, who still have a platform in the white evangelical church. That's my Thing. There's a few people that are out there. Greg and I have talked about this. We've got, you know, Greg's got a great, you know, he got invited to, to preach at, at the seminary, right? In Midwestern, yeah. So he has some influence with, the, with that Southern Baptist crowd, too. He trained under um, Tony Evans in Dallas. And so um, so we, we've got to pull these. I, I appreciate the challenge. Well, you know, my grandmother's hands. 
It's a great book. Like, yeah. I was singing to you, but the song, whatever. Okay. <laughs> hey, can I, are we going to close with the Black National Anthem? Yes. Okay, can I make, I'll make one quick comment? Um, I, when I was going through my own trauma and in recovery, I couldn't go to a white church. And I went to my friend's church, uh, Macedonia Baptist, John Brooks' church, and just sat in, in, you know, black gospel worship for 45 minutes. And I was there attending during Black History Month, February, right before COVID hit. So I was a white person, like one of four white people in a big black church, going through Black History Month in a black church for the first time in my life. You know, mostly white pastor, Fred, you know. And uh, we sang the Black National Anthem every single Sunday. And I, I kid you not, when, the, when I first was focusing on the words, I probably had heard it at the National Anthem, you know, or different places, football games and stuff like that. But I was reading the words, and I was in my own trauma, and it, I just, I cried through this song every single time I heard it. And I, I went up to ask Tim, who's the worship leader there, I said, Tim, what is this song? I'm so embarrassed. I didn't know that I was singing the Black National Anthem. And it's such a powerful song. Oh my gosh. And I, I'm embarrassed to admit that, but it's true. We never sang the Black National Anthem in the White Church. What year was that? That was 2020, February 2020. I'm embarrassed for you. <laughs> well, I have, to, I have to explain. Why he was. No, no. When I first had our first Black History Month back in 20, uh, 20, 20 so at um, Colonial. I had to explain to them what that was and get permission to sing it and explain the background of it in order for us to be able to sing that as a part of our church. We did it once. I'm not gonna comment on that because you still work there. Uh, oh. <laughs> did y'all know why um, in black churches people shout and clap and scream and holler? It is a trauma-releasing mechanism. And what has happened over time is people have tried to convince us that we should not do that anymore. That is something's wrong with that type of worship. And then what did you notice happened at the same time? Mental health challenges within black people started to go up. Suicides with black people started to go up. You have to release trauma from your body. You have to. Yes. So we're going to sing the Black National Anthem together, and we're going to sway our bodies together because it is a trauma-releasing mechanism. Everybody stand. Can y'all give all of our panelists and participants a big hand? Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks for listening all the way through on this episode. By the way, if you're not already a supporter, go to spiritualityadventures.com, sign up for one of our monthly supports, and you will receive our bonus content. You'll receive lots of interesting information about our guests. Many of our musicians will do special bonus songs and record a song. So I wanna encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Be sure and subscribe. Be sure and share any of the episodes that you like. And be sure and make comments if you like them as well. This helps us uh, get spirituality adventures out there to more listeners, more, more watchers. So whatever platform you're using, subscribe, like, share, make comments. And go to our website, sign up for our team and be a part of the team support. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.